Ship your grain across the sea. After many days, you may receive a return. Invest in seven ventures. Yes, in eight. You do not know what disaster may come upon the land. If clouds are full of water, they pour rain on the earth. Whether a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where it falls, there it will lie. Whoever watches the wind will not plant. Whoever looks at the clouds will not reap. As you do not know the path of the wind or how the body is formed in a mother's womb, so you cannot understand the work of God, the maker of all things. Sow your seed in the morning, and at evening let your hands not be idle, for you do not know which will succeed, whether this or that, or whether both will do equally well. The word of the Lord. Lord, we pray that um, you would come and do what we cannot do. Lord, we know that truth is not something uh, that's discovered. Truth is something that's revealed by your Holy Spirit. Real truth that transforms not just the way we think, but also our hearts and also our hands. So, Father, I pray that uh, today we would not be those that hear but do not hear, but we'd be those that hear and then, Father, with great joy, uh, go into our lives with wisdom. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So, <clears throat> this passage of Scripture is kind of hard to understand, so let me sum it all up for you as simply as I can. Your life is not going to go like you planned it. In fact, I could end the sermon right there. If I had time this morning, I could bring up everybody that's over the age of 50. God bless you. You know, as somebody who's about to turn 30, it's kind of good to have people over. I go, did life turn out the way you planned it? And I guarantee you, every one of them would come here and go, no, didn't plan that, didn't plan that. In fact, what this passage is saying is if your hope is that your job, your workplace, what you do for a career is going to work out the way you had hoped, you're in big trouble. In fact, it takes us down this road of saying there are three significant hope traps in the workplace that you got. If you want to be wise, you've got to know that they're there. So let's go to the first hope trap. The first hope trap is found in verse 3. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth, and if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. What it's saying there is it could rain, but it might not rain. <clears throat> a tree falls, it could fall to the south, it could fall to the north. Who knows? And then it gives us a picture of a farmer. And this farmer, the first picture is a farmer with a bucket full of seeds, and he's looking to the clouds, and he's trying to figure out, <clears throat> is it going to rain? Is it not going to rain? And he's trying so hard to figure out the future that in the present, he is doing absolutely nothing. Then we get another picture of another farmer whose fields now are ripe for harvest. It's, it's time to go out and reap. And he, again, is looking at the clouds. And he's wondering, is it going to rain? Is it not going to rain? He's trying to tell the future. And because he can't tell the future, he's doing absolutely nothing. So the first trap is the hope that you actually can tell the future. <laughs> that seems so stupid, doesn't it? 
I mean, so that's the best this preacher's got, is that you can't tell the future. Uh, You know, but there's something inside of us that really wants to be able to tell the future. And more importantly, there's something inside of us that really wants to find somebody who can tell the future, whether it's in the marketplace or whether it's in trends. We're always looking for somebody that says, I know what's about to happen. And this scripture is saying that person doesn't exist. Unless, of course, you find him in one of the greatest theatrical performances in our lifetime in Back to the Future 2. Thank you. Do you remember this was the Back to the Future? I know they get confusing after years, but this is the one where Biff, you know, you know who Biff is. He is the enemy who finds the almanac that has in it all the scores of every sporting event for the upcoming 50 years, and he goes back in time with the almanac and begins to make millions on sure bets because he can tell the future. And you remember what he did with it? With all his wealth? Did he bless humanity? No, he, he turned his town into Biff Tanner's pleasure paradise. <laughs> Do you remember this? No, you don't remember this. Have anybody here not seen Back to the Future 2? Anybody? Okay, I know it's going to rain this afternoon. Netflix... <laughs> Go watch it, then you're going to go, oh, that seemed like a long illustration for such a stupid point. Uh, we laugh, and we go, that's ridiculous, like, that's so funny, like, like, that's crazy, like, nobody puts their hope in being able to tell the future, but we do. Think about this, one of the ways that I tell the future is I make plans all these plans of things that I want to happen in my life. And when I began to look at those plans, I have this unusual ability, not just to dream big, but I also have this unusual ability to see all the ways those plans could go wrong. And I actually start becoming afraid of what potentially could happen in the future, even though it's not really happened. In other words, I can start thinking, you know, I want that deal to come together, but if that deal doesn't come together, then I'm going to lose income, and I start getting afraid of losing income, even though I've lost no income. Or I could say, you know, if I'm honest at work, I'm going to lose my job, and if I lose my job, then I'm going to lose my house, and if I lose my house, I'm going to lose my wife, and if I lose my wife, I'm going to be living in the rescue mission downtown. Boy, the dominoes just start falling. And I can get afraid. I can get so afraid of the future. When I get afraid of the future, what I'm saying to myself and to everybody else around me is I'm a fortune teller. I can tell the future, and the future ain't bright. And here's what's crazy is I'm actually asking my heart to emotionally engage in a reality that does not exist. My emotions aren't good with that. In fact, I wasn't made for that. It's one of the ways I tell the future. And when I do that, when I become so afraid, I mean, think about it. I mean, in a really simple illustration, have you ever not gone to a party because you know what's going to happen when you get there? That's future telling. Like, I, and so emotionally, we're currently reacting right now to what could happen at the party. And I haven't even been to the party yet, but I'm emotionally dealing with it. And what do I do? I stay home. 
And what do I do when I become afraid of the future? I freeze like the farmer that's looking to the clouds. Instead of throwing the seeds or bringing in the harvest, he just freezes. Another way that we tell the future is we do it by cursing the present. What I mean is that we look at our present job and, um, and we just curse it. We complain, we grumble, we just hate it. Like, and maybe you don't hate your job, and I may not be talking to you. Some of you, it's more like me, I'm probably talking to you, is that I can even have a great job, but I have this unbelievable ability to find the things in it that I don't like. I do, I, the yeah buts. Hey, do you have a great job? I have a great job. Yeah, but when I was in graduate school, I got hired by the SOS Oil Company. And this was a local uh, oil company in Mississippi. And they owned uh, this uh, string of gas stations or truck stops across Mississippi. And Mr. Abraham brought me into the office and I said, okay, what am I? He brought, he said, you're going to work in my accounting department. And he came in and he opened this closet and literally like in a movie, receipts started falling out of the closet. And he goes, yeah, these are all the receipts that I haven't collected on in the last four years. And I need you to go through those and then collect them. I said, so let me get this straight. You, you want me to call truck drivers and tell them that they owe you money from four years ago and get them to send you a check? Oh, yeah. I hated my job. I did, it, was, it was, I mean, I learned a lot about life and truck drivers. But uh, when I grumble, when I grumble about the things that I don't like about where I am, what I'm doing, in fact, is I'm telling the future. Because I'm imagining a world where this isn't true. And I'm saying to myself, I would be so much better as if I was in that future rather than in this present. So I curse the present so that I can live in the fantasy of a future that doesn't exist. So, did y'all follow that? And let me tell you what that does. is when I curse the present, I become blind to the blessings that God has given me in the present. So I was in an office with four other girls, and I say other because it was us girls. And these were all girls under the age of 25, and every one of them were divorced. And uh, they hated men. I mean, literally. And when you could hear the stories of the husbands, the guys they married, you would hate men too. And here I was plucked right down in the middle. God didn't have me there to collect money for Mr. Abraham, although I did that. God had me there as a light for his kingdom and an office of hurting women. But when I curse the present because I want to live in a future that doesn't exist, I become blind to the reality of what God is doing right there in the present. So the first trap when we go to work is you can't tell the future. Don't put your hope in that. Second trap is that you hope that you will always understand why God is doing what he's doing. Listen to verse 5. As you do not know the path of the wind or how the body is formed in a mother's womb, so you cannot understand the work of God, the maker of all things. Simply, you can't, if you put your hope in believing that you're going to always understand why God's doing things and that your journey with the Lord is never going to have mystery in it, then you are going to be discouraged and defeated. I mean, think about it. I mean, you know, the Hubble telescope. What did it show us when this thing got up and running was that 
the, the universe that we live in uh, is maybe twice as big as we thought. That it's not 100 mil, mil, billion galaxies out there, it's 200 billion galaxies. And with 100 billion stars in every galaxy, you do the math. I don't even know the word for that 10 to the 22nd power of how many stars are in the universe. And yet God says he knows them all by name. Can we even think that we would understand all of what God is doing? But here's the crazy thing is that when I demand the why from God in every situation and work, I get stuck. I demand the why because I think if I could understand it, then maybe I can control it. Maybe if I can understand it, then maybe I could fix it. And what this passage is telling you, you're not going to always understand what God's up to. Sometimes you will, but a lot of times you won't. And the third trap is um, found in verse 6. So your seed in the morning, in the evening let your hands not be idle, for you do not know which will succeed, whether this or that, or whether both will do exactly well or equally well or not. <clears throat> when we put our hope in success, that's a false place to put your hope. Because I hate to break it to you, but God doesn't promise you success. He doesn't. He doesn't guarantee you success in the marketplace. I mean, you can search Scripture and you can read all you want about God's blessing in your life, but none of those are translated to God is guaranteeing to bless you successfully in the marketplace. I mean, look at the disciples. These were men that followed Jesus. These were the guys that were closest to him, and yet all but one was put to death for their faith. And even Jesus himself, what did he do? Jesus went to the cross for you and for me. And then what did he say to us? Take up your cross and follow me. God does not promise you success. In fact, if you look in the world, uh, success is not guaranteed. I love this podcast, How I Built This. Have you all ever heard this? This is a podcast that uh, NPR puts together. Guy Raz, love Guy Raz. He goes out into the world and he finds these entrepreneurs, these crazy, insanely successful entrepreneurs, and he does an, an hour-long interview with them and gets them to tell the story from from the point of the idea all the way up to the current day. And he interviews people, like people started Instagram and Cliff Bars. My favorite is the interview uh, with the, the CEO of Zappos, the shoe company. Have you ever bought a pair of shoes from Zappos? And I love it when he says that we're not a shoe company. Uh, and I'm like, what? And he's like, yeah, we're not a shoe company. He says, we're a customer service company. I'm like, what? This is crazy. And this guy, he's insane. I mean, he lives in an Airstream, and uh, it's worth listening to. But at the end of every one of these interviews, he's done like 120, 130, something like that, he asks them all the same question at the very end. He says, how much of your success is due to luck, and how much of it is due to skill? You know why that's an interesting question? It's because you just spent an hour listening to their story, and what you've heard in every one of them is there were a thousand points where their business could have exploded, failed, gone bankrupt. And then something happens that rescues them. Like just, and at any point, any one of those things would have not happened, this 
This would not be a podcast right now unless Guy Raz decided to do the podcast, How I Didn't Build This. Here we are on the streets of Nashville. <clears throat> Tony Shea, he's been homeless for a year now. Tony, tell us why you built a shoe company and you didn't call it a shoe company. And you're sitting here on the edge of your seat because you're like, okay, dude, are you going to own up to it? Are you going to own up that your whole, like your company is here because you got lucky? Are you going to go, no, 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 no. It, wah, Midas, you know? I'll let you go and listen. And you can hear what these guys say. But you know, realistically, when you hear the story, oh, your success is lucky. So you can't know the future. That's a bad place to put your hope. You can't understand all that God is doing. That's a bad place to put your hope. And you're not guaranteed success. That's a bad place to put your hope. So how does wisdom bring beauty into that chaos? Let's go back to Ecclesiastes. Chapter 11, verse 1. I'm going to read to you from the ESV. Was that the ESV that we read? No? So I think that was the NIV. So I think the NIV talks about fill your ships with grain and send them out. Let me read it to you from uh, the ESV that may be a little bit more familiar to you. Cast your bread upon the water. You ever heard that before? Cast your bread upon the water and you will find it after many days. Invest in seven ventures, yes, in eight. You don't know what disasters may come upon the land. What does that mean? This idea of casting your bread, first we have to understand that what bread is symbolizing here is your life, that bread is your resources. Bread is your food, but it's more than just your food. It's all that you have, of course, but it's also all that you are. And this passage is saying that you should cast it on the water. Now, when you cast bread on the water, what happens? Well, if it's a river, it's gone. You know, or if it's a lake, it's eventually going to get eaten or it's going to sink. It's going to soak up. Like, what is this talking about? It's talking about by faith to do something and not just do it in moderation. It says invest in seven ventures. Yes, in eight. See, in Scripture, seven is the complete number of God. If you're going to do something, you're going to fill a cup up to the brim. That's to the seven. Like when you do something to the seven, you're doing it to the fullness of God. But when it says, no, go to the eighth, it means over beyond that which you thought you should do. So whatever this means to cast bread on the water, whatever you thought you should do, do it more. And what is it talking about? It's talking about generosity. What the writer of Ecclesiastes says, the, the way to unlock getting stuck in the traps, in the workplace, is to be generous. Not just generous, but outrageously generous. I don't know the future. Be generous. I'm afraid. Be generous. I can't understand what God is up to all the time. I don't know why. Be generous. I can't control success. Bingo. Be generous. Why? Well, look at 2 Corinthians chapter 9. And this is verse 6 through 8. Remember this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you've decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. 
And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. It's the last sentence that I want us to focus on. Generosity actually opens my eyes to see something, that God is blessing you abundantly. That so that in all things, at all times, you will have all that you need with abundance and abounding in every good work that you go to do. See, when I'm generous, what it's saying is, when I'm generous, it's unlocking my eyes to see how generous God is to me. It's unlocking not who I am, but it also unlocks whose I am. It also unlocks for me that I'm the object of God's blessing. It, op- it unlocks for me that I have all that I need. See, here's the crazy thing, that when Christ went to the cross and he took all my sins upon him and said, it is finished, I am forgiven. But Christians, that's half the story. That's just half the story. The other half, oh, this is why well, this is the rest of Back to the Future too. All right, this is where it gets good. Jesus rose again from the dead, and when he rose again from the dead in Romans chapter six, it says, "I rose with him too to newness of life," meaning the life I lived before Christ that's behind me. That's over there. I'm living a new life now. And this new life is a life where I've been given everything I need for life and godliness. The old life, I don't believe that. Are you kidding me? Whew! i got to live sparingly. And what Scripture and Ecclesiastes say, no, 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 no. Be generous because that's how you're going to understand who you are. That's how you're going to understand whose you are. That's going to understand how much you've got in your pockets. It's kind of like the prom kid who takes their date to you know, this nice restaurant and he's got daddy's credit card. And trust me, that kid without daddy there and he's got the credit card, there's about to be some abundant living going on. You know, <laughs> Order anything you want, I don't care. You know, Oh yeah, we're getting t-shirts on the way out too. <laughs> Why? Because that kid's living in the abundance of the knowledge of his father. He, what is he doing? He's casting the bread upon the water. And here's the crazy thing. God promises it's coming back. Oh, wait a minute. Does that mean if I give that God's going to give me that if you give Midtown 20 bucks, you're going to get 60 back from God? (laughs) No, we're not making deals with God like that. Like you're you're not really giving to God that way. You're giving to you, all right? But maybe, uh uh-oh. Maybe he's doing something more powerful. This is in Ephesians chapter 1. Paul says uh, that he prays that your eyes would be open, which means that your eyes are closed. Do you know that when you don't know that you have something, it's the same thing as not having something? Have you ever lost your car keys only to find that they were in your pocket the whole time? You had it, but you lived your life as if you didn't have it, right? And Paul is praying, quit living like you don't have something. And what is he saying? Power. It's the same power as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rules and authorities, power and dominions, and every name that is invoked, not only in this present age, but also in the one to come. What Paul is saying is, do you realize that the same power that the Father used to raise Jesus from the dead to bring him the newness of life is the same power that's working in you? Really? 
See, when I go into the marketplace, success isn't my goal. Living is. Because if I understand how alive I am, I'm not coming to the workplace saying, I've got to be successful to be alive. If I understand how much joy and love and fullness I have in Christ, then I'm going into the marketplace bringing those things to the marketplace instead of demanding the marketplace, give me those things. And man, when you do that, it's dangerous. It is so, so dangerous because you're coming alive instead of waiting for success to make you alive. And we got so much bread, let me tell you. And what I mean by that, I'm not just talking about like, Sure, some of you have money, and you have a lot of money, and you've got a lot of bread money to throw around. And, but you know, every one of you got time money. I mean, the guys that discipled me when I first became a believer, they gave me hundreds and hundreds of hours to teach me who I was in Christ because they thought it mattered. Boy, they threw bread. And me standing before you today is the bread coming back. But you know, all of us have words. Do you know, even in your family, words of encouragement are, are you seven plus eight with that? Do you look at your wife or your husband and cheer them on? Like, man, you're amazing how God has made you. Great job getting up and going to work this morning when you didn't want to. Way to go. I mean, think about it. Think the power of celebrating success in other people. Imagine if you go into the workplace and you're like, man, I don't need to be successful to be fully alive. I'm already fully alive. And you've got somebody in your office and you're both competing for the same position and they get it. And you're like, I didn't need that to be alive. I'm already alive. So when they get it, you (laughs) way to go. Imagine that. Imagine a competitor in another company gets your deal and you say, hey, let me take you to lunch and just celebrate. You did a great job on that. You killed it. Way to go. What? Can you understand that even Scripture, we're the only place in the world that we have a motto that we're going to love our enemies. It's not just love the people you like or love the people you kind of like or kind of love the people you really irritate you. No, it says we're supposed to love our enemies. How do we have the capacity for that unless the power that rose Christ from the dead is also working in me? If I don't know that, I... I don't know where my car keys are, and I'm just going to be frozen. I'm going to stay at home. When they're right there in my hands all along, and the Lord's saying, let's go. See, when I live a life of generosity in the workplace, with my time, with my resources, with my words, with my life, because I have been given abundance, then I don't live to work for work. I live to work for him. And we start living rather than letting what we do define what living is. And then we get crazy. Let me tell you how we get crazy. I remember the first time I saw Les Mis in D.C. on the stage, and I was like, good Lord, I didn't even know this kind of stuff existed. This is just unbelievable. But I'll never forget the first time I saw the scene where Jean Valjean, you know, stole you know, the silverware from the priest and was caught and brought back. And the priest says, no, no, no. He tells the police officer, I gave him those, but you forgot your candlesticks. Remember that scene? And then you remember what the priest said to him? I can't remember it exactly. I should have looked it up. 
but something of the essence of, I'm buying you. What he's saying is, I'm casting my bread on the water. And I'm doing it by faith. Only God can turn that bread and bring it back to me. He may bring it back to me by just showing me how generous he is to me. But he also may bless me with the fruit of that. Is your life like that? Are you stuck? So back in March, I was in Uganda visiting my daughter who was there working for IJM. And I was at her house, and it was like 10, 30, 11, and I'm walking back to my hotel, which is about a half a mile away, and there are no street lights or anything. And I'm like, ah, oh, that's cool. And I'm, so I'm by myself, and I'm walking down the street, you know, gonna die, gonna die, gonna die. And I hear this I'm like, oh, no, what is this? this is like some strange, you know, the resistance army is back, and they got me, you know. And... <clears throat> And I turn around, and this seven-foot figure is flying down the road. And it gets closer and closer, and I realize it's a guy on one of those one-wheel uh, skateboards. Have you ever seen them? they got one big single wheel. They're electric. And he's going like 20 miles an hour in the dark, all right? And he comes flying up and stops, and he's this tall white guy from Australia with a big man bun and he's skinny and he's got this big grin and he's like, hey man, what's going on? I'm like, bro, I don't know. Should I be excited or scared right now? I don't. That was Quinn Neely. I said, so what's your story? And he goes, well, I came here five, six years ago to work for a school and realized that I am not a teacher. I said, so what do you do? He goes, "Uh, well, come with me tomorrow and I'll show you. So I go and I meet him at Elefante's, which is the restaurant in Gulu that he started. And everybody that works there are Ugandans. He says, I'm not a, he said, I'm not a missionary like you think. He says, I, I'm an entrepreneur. And I have crazy dreams, and we're just here to just see how much we can trust the Lord. And so Elefante's was this restaurant that they started to teach people how to cook and to teach them how to serve and to create revenue for local Ugandans that are working in a restaurant. Then we left his restaurant and went around back and there was a plastic recycling center where there, there's a problem with homeless uh, kids in Gulu. And he encourages them to gather plastic and bring it back here and they pay them. And he says, typically we can give kids enough money from plastic they gather daily to where they have at least one meal a day. But then we have programs here that sports and other things to help get them off the streets. Then we walked a little bit further and we came up on this this field of little bitty saplings, like like 300,000 little sapling trees. And he goes, this is the forest we're about to plant. Because everybody in Uganda heats their home and cooks over this coal that's made from wood. And he goes, we're creating a business where we're going to supply this to the marketplace. Then we went around the corner, and he goes, this is the yogurt plant that we've made. I'm like, what are you talking about? He goes, I said, do Ugandans eat yogurt? He goes, they do now. This is frozen yogurt. They made a deal with the dairy farmers. They bring their milk in, and they, they've built a plant that's run by Ugandans now, and they've got a whole army of kids on bicycles that have little coolers on the back. They fill those coolers with these little frozen yogurts, and they go out and sell them all day. Sell them, make money. They employ so many people. Then we went around the corner, and there was their mushroom production plant. I'm talking about the kind you eat, all right? So 
This is, they, they grow mushrooms, but they're also creating a drying packaging, packaging center because they're going to start these, these planting centers all over Uganda and teach Ugandans how to be agricultural entrepreneurs. Then they'll bring their harvest to this drying packaging and they're going to start shipping them to India. Then we talked about the hotel they're trying to build and, and he's just smiling. And I'm thinking in my mind, this doesn't work. But it does. And will he fail? I mean, maybe. I don't know. I mean, he'll be here in a week or so, and we'll find out. But look what he's doing. He's not working to live. He's living. And outrageously, he's throwing his bread on the water. And he's going, God, do whatever you want with it. Because I know what you're doing with me. And that's where my hope's at. And you're never going to leave me. You're always going to take care of me. I don't ever have to worry about that. That's where my hope rests. I take that light into the marketplace. So that's all I got to say. Except to ask you, this is a really important part of the sermon. Because you may be really irritated by the way I talk and the fact that my sinuses are all clogged up. I don't know. But the simple question is, is, is it true? Are you a generous person because you know the generosity of the Father in your life? Because if you're not, you need to repent. You need to ask Jesus to come and change your life because you're living small. And I'm just telling you right now, this, this city doesn't need more churches living small. The needs of this city need people that know how to throw their bread on the water. You probably need to know how to throw your bread on the water. You might need to start in your home. You have to start some yogurt business. Maybe just go home and ask the people in your house, forgive me for the lack of generosity that I've given to you. Maybe it starts in the workplace tomorrow. I don't know. This is where the Holy Spirit comes in because I'm going to pause and I'm just going to give a little prayer. If you're not familiar with how the Holy Spirit convicts us, just listen. He'll teach you. Let him guide you. Lord, forgive us, Father, for where we have lived small. We've not been generous with forgiveness. We've not been generous with our resources. We've not been generous with our time or with our words, we often hoard them up and live as if we'll never have enough. Forgive us for living so small. Forgive us for demanding our jobs. Give us what only you promised to give us. Forgive us. And I pray that, Lord, even now, that you would reignite hope. No matter what the future comes, our hope is in you. If we never understand why, our hope is in you. That if for some reason, Lord, we have success or we don't, our hope is in you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.